Welcome back. You're tuned in to Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I'm the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to continue the series that we started a couple of months back on called A System in Transition. The focus of this series that we're going to be running for the next year and a half is really around understanding what energy transitions are, why we're transitioning our energy system, and diving into some of the specific stories of people, organizations, and nonprofits that are living that transition firsthand. This show is going to be a little bit more theoretical and we're going to take a step back to look at energy transitions themselves and the idea of systems change. I'm very excited to have Chad Park from The Natural Step and Chris Nelder from the Rocky Mountain Institute join us this month and they're each going to walk us through different aspects of energy transitions. The interview with Chad really focuses around the Energy Futures Lab, which is looking at systems level change in Alberta's energy system to transition it from the energy system we have today into the one that the future requires of us. And Chad and that The Natural Step have done a fantastic amount of work and research in trying to understand how systems change happens, how do you look at the short term, how do you look at the long term, and how do you map that out and really work with all different aspects of the industry and the system itself to make that transition happen. Chris Nelder is someone who's been involved in the energy and sustainability industry for well over a decade and has a phenomenal amount of insight as to how we transition, the stories of transition, uh, and he's also going to talk about his podcast series, which is The Transition Show, uh, and I very much recommend everyone else check out. So without further ado, our first interview is going to be with uh, Chad Park, and then next up we're going to have uh, Chris Nelder after that. So this is Energy Transitions from Energy Voices. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome somebody who I've gotten to know fairly well over the past year, uh, Chad Park, who's the Chief Innovation Officer of The Natural Step uh, and the Director of the Energy Futures Lab. So welcome to the show, Chad. Thank you. Good to be here. So uh, full disclosure, I, I know Chad through being a fellow that's part of the Energy Futures Lab, uh, and it's been something that's been really I think influential in my own life and something that I've been really proud to be part of. Uh, but I don't want to steal the thunder of uh, explaining what the natural step is and what the Energy Futures Lab is. So maybe to kick us off, could you just give us the sort of quick background on first what the natural step is and then what this Energy Futures Lab thing is? Okay, sure. The natural step is an international NGO um, originally started in Sweden 25 years ago. And its mission is really to help accelerate the transition to a sustainable society, which is a, a very big mission. <laughs> uh, it, it's a science-based approach to sustainable development. And um, over the years, the natural step, to the extent that it's known, has largely been known for the work it's done on sustainability education, first, and secondly, on helping uh, large organizations to navigate their sustainability strategies, especially at large corporations like Nike and Ikea and so on. But mm -hmm. uh, more recently, we've we've begun working much more on multi-stakeholder projects that are more about systems change than about change within single organizations. And, and that's partly because we know we can't achieve our mission working one organization at a time. A lot of these 
big sustainability challenges are complex and can't be solved by any single organization mm -hmm. and uh, require collaboration among groups that uh, aren't used to working together or aren't used to working together well. And the energy system and the, you know, the transition to a sustainable energy future is a very fine example of that, a very complex issue that involves lots of different interests and stakeholders. And uh, so that's, that's really the background to how we got into this, uh, this work generally. And the Energy Futures Lab specifically is, a, is an Alberta-focused uh, initiative along those lines. And it's really about um, engaging a, a diversity of stakeholders across the energy system in Alberta to work together first to kind of imagine or envision uh, the, the energy system that they think we need to aspire to, and then maybe most importantly, to find ways to work together to, to bring that system about. Yeah, and the the, the question to, to maybe give us some context and background for our listeners is, what's sort of been the timeline? So for, you sort of mentioned the 25-year the history of the Natural Step and the Natural Step Canada, but when, the, for specifically for the Energy Futures Lab, when was the sort of idea floated of, hey, let's try this lab thing uh, and, and maybe walk us from that moment until sort of where we're at today? Sure, there were two main, um, I guess, streams of, uh, of events that led to uh, this Energy Futures Lab. One was the fact that the Natural Step was working with a number of organizations in Alberta. Um, for example, the landmark group of builders, uh, the City of Edmonton and, and others, in, uh, in helping them with their sustainability strategies. And, um, and a lot of these organizations were you know, setting very ambitious goals and, um, and of course, doing their best to achieve those goals, but often running up against barriers that were beyond their control in, in their own organizations to, to kind of achieve those ambitious sustainability goals. So yeah. conversations about, well, you know, what kind of collaboration with other groups is going to be required in order to shift some of the systemic barriers to you achieving your goals. So that was, that was kind of one stream. The other stream was uh, about... Let's say three years ago, uh, we were sort of in the heat of the very, very polarized situation uh, about Alberta and energy, oil sands, and so on. Where um, it, our feeling and the feeling lots that we, lots of people that we were dealing with, was that if you kind of followed the public dialogue on these issues, you either you were either on one side or the other, as in you were either a supporter of the environment and action on climate change on one hand, or you were a uh, someone who was pro-business and pro-industry on the other. And we knew that uh, there was uh, that 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 there were a lot of people and groups that were that were you know didn't see themselves on either end of that polarized debate, and that and that rather were working somewhere in the middle. Um, and and so the discussion with a number of different groups from oil and gas companies to environmental groups was sort of, well, can we can we create something that will help both shine the light on all that good work that's happening in Alberta, uh, kind of in the middle of those polarized debates, and, and also maybe to seed new ambition uh, among those people and, and create a little bit of a, of a momentum for a, for a different kind of public narrative. So that was, you know, um, three years ago at least, maybe even more, and... Um, and things kind of unfolded from there. We did a round of interviews with thought leaders in, in both, you know, in industry and government, environmental groups, uh, First Nations and so on, to help scope and shape the, the program. And then and then ultimately it kind of evolved from there. And of course, the situation is, uh, has changed a lot in three years, uh, both the economy, the political situation and so on. But the, I think the lab is uh, 
even more relevant potentially today than it was back then. And and can you maybe give a bit of background for our listeners on sort of what the structure of the lab is? So who participates? You've sort of mentioned multi-stakeholder engagement, but uh, maybe some of the tangible, like who's involved, what are some of the groups that are represented, what happens as part of the Energy Futures Lab? Sure. Yeah, there are three streams of activity in the lab and the the, the kind of core of it all is a is a group of in innovators and influencers that are have been brought together it's about 40 people and we call them uh, or they're they're referred to as the as the fellows of the energy futures lab sean is one of them <laughs> a proud member <laughs> uh and so these are these are people from a a, a a whole different um set of backgrounds related to the energy system um who in their own worlds whether it's an oil and gas sector a clean tech entrepreneur an environmental advocate a first nations leader a municipal or chamber of commerce um leader and so on um are are uh, kind of innovators and influencers in that in that world mm-hmm. uh, and so the part of the point of it of course is that they that we've brought together a very diverse group uh and and then the other the other thing is that they're all um, I, I, I like to refer to them as kind of rising stars mm-hmm. <laughs> in, 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 their, um, in their respective areas. And uh, so just to be specific, organizations like um, uh, Suncor, Shell, um, you know, uh, Alberta Innovates, um, Panamana Institute, um, TELUS Spark, uh, Calgary Economic Development, you know, City of Edmonton, City of Calgary. Yep. Uh, a wide a wide range of stakeholders. Yeah. And I think that's something when people sort of ask me about the Energy Futures Lab, one of the first things I say is sort of the, in my opinion, the stroke of brilliance that was uh, getting such a diverse group of people together that there are staunch environmentalists and there's industry folks that are leading some of the major mergers and acquisitions that happen within the oil and gas industry. And you sort of have this fantastic cross-section but that everyone sort of understands to your point that the polarization that did exist and continues to exist in some parts of, of this province and in this country and in the global context wasn't really benefiting. There wasn't a massive benefit to anyone in plugging your ears and saying my opinion's right. And so I think that that whole dynamic of of actually getting people that have differing opinions and differing viewpoints has been really, really valuable. And so just wanted to interject there. So you, you talked about the fellows piece. What are some of the other components of the Energy Futures Lab and the, and the sort of focus for the, the, the group? Right. So um, uh, the two other streams of the lab are the organizational engagement stream and the public engagement stream. And talk about those in just a moment, but maybe one more thing about the fellows, which is kind of what they're doing together. Um, so all the fellows were, uh, were recruited last summer, um, a pretty extensive recruitment and application process and so on, and um, and then selected, uh, you know, with the with the help of a, of a, of a steering committee. And um, once they're once they're selected, once they're committed, uh, they've committed to at le- a process together that lasts at least uh, 15 months, but I think most anticipate is going to go beyond that as well. And that um, that process has been running since last November and has involved a series of, of gatherings where they've come together for roughly three days at a time, roughly every quarter. And, um, and what they've been doing together is 
partly building rapport and relationship and trust among one another, learning to view the energy system through a whole bunch of different lenses, and, and in particular to, to learn to view it from others' perspectives. And, um, and, then, and then, as you know, with the benefit of that and with some you know, study tours, kind of learning visits and so on to different things that are happening in the province, mm-hmm. to begin to shape a, a, a kind of co-articulated vision or expression of what they think the energy system is that the future requires of us mm-hmm. and and so in may they released a, a draft um, working statement of that vision and and a, and a series of innovation pathways that they think the province needs to to work through in order to achieve that vision and so that's what that's the process that's part of the process they've been going through together and then secondly they've been these are all real um like yourself, real kind of go-getters and people who want to get things done and not just sit around and talk. And so they've also been working on collaborative projects. Initially, um, a series of kind of prototype projects that were just, let's try some things together to build on some ideas we have. And now getting more into ongoing working groups on really strategic issues. And then the, on the organizational engagement and the public engagement side of things, what's the, so you've got the sort of core group that's working on sort of here's a bit of a, a vision from a multi-stakeholder group and, and sort of driving that forward. But how does the, the Energy Futures Lab plan to sort of impact organizations and, and the, the public at large? Yeah, the so the organizational engagement stream is, uh, is really it's kind of motivated by the notion that you know let's say we're really successful with this and these forty people have a great experience and they're in some way or another transformed and generate great ideas but um, they all go back to organizations and institutions where their colleagues haven't had the benefit of the interactions and the new insights and the and the new relationships and so on so that can really act as a barrier to the adoption of new ideas and innovation so yeah. obviously so we're um, uh, we've envisioned the organizational engagement stream as a as as one way to try to address that, and that's basically in supporting the fellows in engaging their kind of home organizations as yeah. they as they go back. So, we've just been piloting it this year um, with actually with Suncor Energy, and uh, there. So we've worked with a group of thirty people from within the business across the business yeah. to kind of expose them to some of the thinking that's happening within the lab and to and to discuss how it relates to Suncor's business. And that's, of course, the idea being that that's going to help this, the fellow from Suncor to better, to have a kind of a, a peer group. A posse. Yeah, you know. within the organization to, uh, you know, to support the ideas that are coming out of the lab. Yeah. So we want to replicate that in different ways with different organizations. Of course, organizations of very different sizes and scopes and so on. Yeah. The public engagement side is is really, uh, we, we've kind of started a little bit, but it's really going to be starting in uh, to, to ramp up more significantly uh, coming this fall and into next year. And and the idea there is that all of this, all of this good work uh, exists within a broader cultural context where, the, as we were saying earlier, the public narratives around energy, uh, you know, and, and sort of just the, the overall public uh, sentiment around it is uh, aren't necessarily conducive to the adoption of new ideas if it's a very polarized environment for example that that can act as a barrier too so again we want to use different sets of you know activities and and engagements to to um, introduce um, the broader audiences to the the work of the EFL fellows and to the ideas that are emanating out of the out of the, of the lab so we'll have some of that is is um, you know going to be through the channels that the the fellows themselves have access to because of their diversity, 
uh, and then and then we'll also have some direct engagement with communities that um, that involves things like courses. We're going to be launching a an EFL boot camp, cool. um, and uh, and also games. Uh, we've developed a an energy transition simulation game that'll be yeah. run. Well, already has been in, uh, run in a, in a couple of instances, and will be run in other communities yeah. across the province. And I'm a board game geek, and I played this Newtonian shift game, and it was fantastic. It's basically <laughs> like a game like Power Grid, but uh, times ten, and uh, it's a fantastic game. So if you ever come up with a tabletop version of it, I think there will be a lot of interest. That's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. This this conversation that we're having uh, is part of this series that we're doing on systems in transition. So we we kicked that off um, in uh, the summer with uh, Minister Phillips and with Liam, who's also a fellow as part of the lab. And and the idea for us was to sort of over time consistently check in on these transitions that are happening because it, the very word transition implies that it's happening over a period of time. You a transition t literally takes time for it to happen and and so the 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 thing that i was really interested in having you on today um to talk about was was some of the theory behind systems change because there's there's a lot of people out there who are participating in a system change are advocating against systems change they're sort of part of the larger energy system and, and provincial ecosystem that we have in the province and very few of those individuals are in the position that you're in where you are actively trying to stoke a transition within that system that you're trying to understand the theory and the practice and the, and the real world application of systems change and understanding the sort of complex and nuance of some of these sorts of issues whereas most other people are participating in some smaller or more peripheral way or they work at an organization that is a stakeholder within that system but you're one of the very few organizations and individuals that is trying to understand okay what is this thing we call an energy system how do we transition it how does it become the system that the future requires of us and so uh, I was hoping to have you give us a bit of an explanation on the theory behind some of this work so what, what is the theory behind how you change systems? What is the theory behind why you take, you've taken the approach that you've taken with the Energy Futures Lab? Because I don't think that that's something that uh, the average person or e even people that are, that are in the similar space would ever spend time thinking about. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, I think there's, there are two things I'd probably want to uh, elaborate on in response to that. Um, so the first is... Um, uh, some some theory about systems change and 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 transitions that that has really inspired uh, a lot of the way the Energy Futures Lab is designed. And um, there's a, a Dutch uh, researcher named Giels. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, <laughs> whose work we've really um, we've really uh, benefited from. And a lot of what that talks about is the fact that. Um, he talks about three levels of uh, of change that that happen in a social change or in a you know system transition and so on, and uh, and and the three levels are not always conscious to everyone who, of course, like you're describing, who are who are working in that in that change, but um, but are it's important to be aware of them for anyone who is kind of actively trying, like we are, um, and I think actually a lot of people are that are trying to. Um, facilitate or enable a smooth transition and so the the first level is um, the level of the where the actual kind of grassroots innovations happen and he calls it the niche so um, new ideas new technologies uh, you know new um, community organizations that type of thing that 
are 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 developed, are seeded, um, and 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 there's often a um, you know a deliberate attempt to invest in creating new ideas and new niche ideas, new technologies, and so on. And so that is, of course, a very important um, yeah. aspect of this. When we're talking about energy. We're talking about like new technologies, about um, you know, all the technology required for electric cars or for renewable energy or all those kind of things, new right? Business models, new or business models, community or right. groups, and that's and there and there's yeah. we need a whole bunch of new ideas on that on that yeah. scale, and and some of them will scale and others will kind of fizzle out and so on. Um, the second level is is the level of policy. He calls it regime, and and that you know is basically that there's a set of policies that exist or that can exist that either uh, inhibit or um, support the scaling of those niche ideas. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think our provincial government right now, for example, is has put in place this uh, climate leadership plan that is seeking um, to help stimulate, uh, you know, a set of policies to help stimulate the emergence of new ideas, new technologies, and 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 um, and new endeavors and so on. So, um, and then there's, you know, there's lots of, of course, um, lots of work that can be done and that is often done on advocating for different policies, um, you know, and, and it's, a, it's a key part of systems change. And so, there, so often there are groups working at, you know, the niche level. There are some, there are groups working at the policy level. Sometimes there are groups working at the interplay between the niche and the policy level. Mm -hmm. um, but um, often, um, what Gills talks about is that uh, often a lot of that work kind of ignores the third level, which is the level of what he calls landscape. But that's um, it's really the level of culture, uh, and it's sort of the broader cultural narratives that give space for or um, create the, the 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 room to maneuver, I guess, for um, policy ideas and niche innovations to scale. And um, if you look at you know big social movements. Uh, across history, um, it's often been when cultural narratives and cultural, um, um, you know, when, when, the, when the culture shifts, that, 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 that the real tipping point comes. And um, so when we're designing a, a, a system change initiative, it's, it's important to at least be conscious of all three. Um, and, you know, not everyone can work at all three levels, but it's, um, you know, we're, we've certainly designed the Energy Futures Lab with an attempt to try to 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 work at all three of those levels, and and one of the things that I think is fascinating about this idea of the Energy Futures Lab is the fortunate circumstance of timing, and that this was you sort of articulated. So three years ago, we're talking 2013. The oil and gas industry was doing fantastically, rebounded incredibly well from the 2008-2009 downturn, um, and we'd had a provincial regime that had been for four plus decades, and the uh, the landscape of our um, this conversation around energy transition was very very different than it is today, and so the uh, i think that there's some very interesting timing especially that the fellow group has been getting together for the past year year and a half now um sort of in the midst of some very fundamental and structural change to alberta's energy system and so uh, i wanted to sort of get a sense from you of um what have been some of the wins and what have been some of the roadblocks that you that the the natural step in the energy futures lab has run into um, in trying to promote this idea of an energy transition uh, within the province. What what has been things that you've been wildly proud of, and what have been things that you have been uh, uncomfortable roadblocks or, or challenges for the for the lab? 
Okay. The I think the I think you're first of all you're you're right about the timing and um, uh, I mean there are certainly some people who and when we set out to do this a couple of years ago would have you know if we described the the sort of policy situation and uh, you know and and just generally kind of where we're at right now and at least in terms of the rise of of alternative um, energy. Um, you know, would have, you know, probably been thinking we've been dreaming that that could have happened um, two years ago uh, as an outcome, let's say, of the lab. And of course, that hasn't happened because of the lab, but the the, the, the sequence of events is such that we're in a very different environment. And, um, and, and the timing has been has been great in that sense. And it, it's allowed the conversation among the fellows to, I think, to be very different than it might have otherwise been. And this would be one of the first things I'd say in response in terms of successes is that it's allowed the fellows to really, um, um, well, first of all, to um, I think it's part of what's attracted the kinds of people and the, and, the, and, the, and the caliber of people that have been attracted to this. It's sort of a lot of people recognizing the world is changing, not just in Alberta and Canada, but globally. And... Um, and we need to really think hard about uh, what's our position in, in, in relation to all those changes. And I don't think if these changes had happened, you know, we might not have even um, started this whole process with the caliber of people that we're starting with. So, um, and, and that said, the, um, the focus of the conversation and the, and the activity of the, of the fellows has been able to be much more about how we um, work together to enable the transition. You know, what are the tangible ideas we can create together? It's not uh, can or should. Yeah, not can, not should, and not even, you know, don't have to spend too much time thinking about how we have to advocate for certain policies or whatever. I mean, that kind of, that's underway and that's happening. Um, and so really the work has been um, about building the rapport and trust among the people and um, generating um, tangible ideas that people can work together on. So, um I would say, uh, and we're still in the early days of that part of it, but um, the fact that there there has been such a strong engagement from the participating fellows um, has been a definite, um, you know, source of pride. Uh, I think the, and, and then it's early days yet to say exactly what the tangible outcomes are going to be from the lab, but there's already some pretty um notable and significant ideas that are emerging as projects and as collaborations and so on from the lab. So, um, you know, I think that and in terms of one of the difficulties or challenges, that is probably one of them where it's hard both to start a process and to generate um, support for and attention to um, something like this where the outcome is unknown. Mm -hmm. You know, you're starting something. It's not like we're starting this process saying we are trying to change this policy or we are trying to create this new business model. We're actually leaving it up to and trusting a process of really bright and brilliant people to generate some really great ideas together without being able to specify what exactly they are. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the my favorite but least understood courses in university was a course uh, on emergent strategy and the whole idea that uh, sort of the typical strategic management approach of, okay, we're going to get a group of people together and figure out a new policy that will solve all of our problems and you sort of prescribe the outcome at the start is what a lot of people are more used to. And the thing that I find that is both a blessing and a curse with the lab is this to articulate to people that the the idea was to bring a group of really talented people together and to and to sort of 
let some of these ideas and concepts emerge out of the conversations there and allow new thinking and creative thinking to happen is something that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. But the the I find it so interesting because to your point, you never could have wished three years ago that we would have had a new government that would be reviewing microgeneration regulations and creating climate plans and a carbon levy and all of the things that have changed the policy regime in the past 18 months within this province are things that you never could have prescribed three years ago as maybe they would have been pipe dreams of hopes of things that would happen in in pushing an energy transition and so um, I think that that approach is something that is so difficult to articulate because it's purposefully undocumented as far as what the finale is going to be and so uh, i'll avoid the question of what do you hope for the energy futures lab but what are what are maybe some of the things that we can expect um, from the energy futures lab over the next sort of six to twelve months well one thing i should say i i I just realized as you were talking there sean that i didn't um elaborate on the second point about the theory i was going to mention which is just uh, and it'll help me answer this question which is um, the natural steps background is in um, a planning approach to sustainable development called backcasting, and that's just kind of a fancy term for beginning with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's called backcasting in order to contrast it with forecasting. So forecasting is analyzing past trends, projecting them out into the future, and based on what seems to be emerging, deciding what our strategy should be. Yeah. Backcasting is about you know starting with what do we want for the future, and then look back to where we are today, and then decide what we should do to to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. So we've often done that in organizations, and now we're essentially helping this group to backcast as a system. Mm-hmm. Um, but we just said we we haven't started the process by specifying the specific outcomes. So rather we're describing the outcomes uh, on, on in terms of principles that we seek to achieve, and um, and and kind of co-creating those uh, those principles with the fellows. So. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little bit of a different approach, but that's that's the second part of my answer to the earlier question. And how that relates to what we can expect, I think, is that um, um, well, first of all, there's uh, we can expect more uh, tangible projects and initiatives to emerge from the collaborative discussions. We're heading into our next gathering of the fellows in October in Calgary, and um, the focus there is really going to be to um, to kind of crystallize the the collaborative initiatives and. Already we can see that there are prototype projects and ideas that are emerging that have to do with geothermal energy, that have to do with new ways of engaging the public, Mm -hmm. that have to do with um, renewable energy in First Nations in Alberta, that have to do with reducing emissions in oil sands. Um, And I think uh, all of the above are are important parts of the energy transition. I think Um, It's important to note the Energy Futures Lab isn't all about, for example, renewable energy, although that's a big part of it. It's also about how can we um, how can we uh, leverage and take advantage of the the assets and the resources and the strengths that Alberta has built in in, let's say, the past or or today's energy system to serve as 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 help for the future. So um, things like alternative uses of uh, of carbon and, and and hydrocarbons and so on, or, or turning CO two from a waste into uh, new materials. There's you know innovators that are that are pioneering work on that. So any any you know uh, initiatives that emerge pro- over the next six to twelve months, I'd say we'll be really disappointed if we can't point to a, a, at least a handful or more of yeah. uh, of those kind of really tangible outcomes that are coming. But also. 
Uh, I think we can expect a lot more opportunity to expand the circle of engagement of the lab beyond just the 40 fellows and their host organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll be later this year launching a, uh, a, a, you know, a public engagement effort that seeks to create a lot more opportunities for Albertans across the province to mm-hmm. participate in and engage in this whole energy transition space. Uh, yeah. And you're, you're teeing me up for a good final question, which is um, for listeners or people who have either heard about the lab or are hearing about it now, uh, and they're not one of the 40 fellows or they're not a policymaker, how, how do they get involved? How do, can they get involved in this idea of the energy transition that's happening in Alberta uh, and specifically with the Energy Futures Lab? Well, I think, um, first of all, I think it's, um, I think it's really encouraging that our experience has been that there's a lot of people who do want to get involved, um, a lot more than than we might expect, um, and either do want to get involved or who already see themselves as involved. And where the lab actually, uh, I think, creates a uh, almost something of a of a broader movement or, or umbrella that they can they can um, understand their own efforts within. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know, part of it is is just engaging in something that's that's kind of bigger than our own our, our own selves or our own initiatives um, so yeah our 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 hope is to create really tangible uh, opportunities for people to to actualize that so um, we'll be uh, we'll be you know specifying some of these opportunities in the next little while but as I said earlier some of them in the very short term are going to be uh, courses um, yeah. um, uh, events, of the Energy Futures Lab, and um, and ultimately we're going to be looking to um, to to create kind of a uh, a, a second um, means of engagement for people that beyond just the fellowship that we haven't named yet, but some people are starting to refer to as the friends of the EFL. I think it needs a different name than that, but so uh, you know some some way that people can can kind of raise their hand and say I want to be a part of that, and then we'll be given opportunities whether it's to participate in some of the prototype projects of the fellows, whether it's to um, just to receive our you know, newsletter and, and attend the odd event, or whether it's to be more more actively involved in um, kind of representing some of the activities of the lab in their own communities. Yeah. And so if people want to join the newsletter or hear about some of the stuff as it rolls out, what's the best way to do that? Our website is the best place to go. It's um, energyfutureslab.com. And there you can get an overview of, of, of all that we've been talking about here and the people involved and so on. And there you can also sign up for the newsletter. And I'd say that's probably the best place to, uh, to make sure you're, you're um, staying on top of what's happening and where the, spe- the specifics of the announcements uh, about all this will come. Our, our first EFL boot camp is going to be in Calgary, November 28th to 30th. So there'll be more information coming about that too. Yeah. Well, uh, I just wanted to say a big thank you for participating today. I think the I was uh, one of the young punks selected to be part of the Energy Futures Lab. And, and even just personally, it's been something that I know has been really influential in my career and something that I see as one of the few initiatives I've come across that has actually had the audacity to try to do some things that are a bit more bold and different and, and looking at finally trying to tackle some of these structural issues that have existed within our province for a long time. And so uh, I can't recommend strongly enough for, for our listeners to get involved and to, to raise their hand and to participate and engage with some of this work because uh, I think it's 
it's about time that this sort of work happened. I've been involved in energy and climate and sustainability conversations since 2007 in this province. And, and this is one of the few things I've come across where I'm very proud of it as an Albertan and proud to participate in it as an individual. And so I just want to recommend or commend you on the work that you guys have been doing. I know it's been a long process, but it's something that I think uh, our province has really needed for a long time. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, That's so, great. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. Okay. Good to be here. Thanks. Hi, I'm Meredith Adler, the Executive Director of Student Energy, and I'm here today with Chris Nelder, one of Student Energy's favorites. Chris, we first met back at the summit in Bali in 2015, but since then, you've launched the Transition Show. Can you tell us about what the Transition Show is and why now? Why are you doing it in this day and age? Yeah, uh, well, the Energy Transition Show is, I think, the right idea for the time because energy transition is happening. It's happening big and it's happening everywhere and it's I think it's reached the point where it's really truly unstoppable mm -hmm. and there's so there's a lot of misunderstanding out there about how it's actually working um, things that uh, you know uh, there's parts of transition that work different ways in different places and, and people don't really want that story told in places that are heavily wedded to the fossil fuel complex and then on the other hand, there are people that really may have unrealistic ideas about how quickly energy transition can proceed for those that are in favor of it. And so my uh, ambition with the show was to really try to help people sort out fact from fiction and understand what's really happening, what the real potential is, and to basically just try to highlight the work of true experts in the field who really know their data and, and really understand, you know, uh, what the potentials and, and the challenges are uh, to really talk talk about it and help people understand it. Yeah, so you've been working on energy transitions, I think, well before this was a buzzword. Yes. We could say that much. Yes. So I guess we first started talking about it, in my memory, about 10 years ago, let's say 2006, 2008. Mm -hmm. What have you seen really change since that time? Well, geez, I mean, I, I jumped out of a previous career in software in 2003 to get into the solar business. And from 2003 to 2006, I was in solar. And it was at that point that I decided to start writing about energy and energy transition. Um, and so I've really, you know, seen just kind of the whole zeitgeist of energy transition really change a lot over the past decade. I mean, 10 years ago, you know, what were we talking about? We were talking about the hydrogen economy in the U.S. We were talking about how, you know, ethanol was going to totally replace gasoline. We were talking about all sorts of space-based solar power, all sorts of crazy junk that no one even bothers to talk about anymore because it was nonsense. Meanwhile, back then, you know, we were trying to install, you know, residential solar at, you know, eight bucks a, you know, a watt. Um, now we're all thinking about a dollar a watt. You know, uh, utility scale solar had hardly even started. You know, capacity factors were lower. Um, you know, people were still thinking 10 years ago that the world would get to, you know, 130 million barrels a day of oil consumption. Uh, nobody thinks that anymore. So there's a lot that's changed over the last decade. I think the consciousness uh, about how quickly energy transition might happen, how important it is to happen, um, has really changed and improved a lot. I think there are a lot fewer 
deniers about climate change now than there were 10 years ago. Um, there's a lot more energy actually going into real solutions now. There's a lot more capital being deployed. The costs have come down a lot. Um, it's just a whole different game now than it was 10 years ago. And I think that's really interesting because today I'm actually running into Chris at the Alberta Climate Summit. But all week we've been seeing a lot of different projections around what we do with the Paris Agreement. If we can get to 1.5 degrees C, if we can get to 2 degrees C, at what point? And some of these projections are saying, well, at 2100 we'll be at 2.2 degrees if we do the best that we can do right now. But some other projections are saying, no, we just need to get pedal to the metal, decarbonize by 2050, and get this done. What do you think is really a realistic expectation for an energy transition? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, as you were speaking just now, I was thinking about some of the, some of the modern equivalents of things that everybody believes that are probably no more realistic than you know, the hydrogen economy that we were talking about 10 years ago are, for example, carbon capture and sequestration. I mean, if you look at uh, all these decarbonization models, all the projections from IEA, you know, the model that we just saw the gentleman from Shell present in the last session, they're all talking about this big future for CCS. Well, it doesn't exist, really. I mean, there's a couple of small pilot projects uh, that so far have not proven to be terribly scalable. We've had some massive flameouts of CCS projects like Future Gen 1 and Future Gen 2 and so on. Um, you know, everybody realizes that CCS is not actually going to work and be scalable to a level that matters until we probably invest several hundred billion, maybe a half a trillion dollars in CCS R&D. Right. Um, and that's going to have to be done out of the public purse, probably on an international scale. And right now, there's not one country that's stepping up to make that happen. So, right. you know, let's talk about what's realistic. So, in your mind, I guess this brings me back to another question I had for you. Thinking back to that past 10 years, what have been either the innovations or the policy mechanisms that have really influenced systems change in this kind of whole new wave of thinking that we've seen in the last 10 years? And then what do you think is actually realistic for what we're looking at in the next mm. kind of 10 years as we ramp up? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, renewable portfolio standards have been a big part of uh, making the progress that we've made in wind and solar, certainly in the U.S., but also in, in Canada. And can you explain just for a second exactly what a renewable portfolio standard is? Not oh, it's, it's basically just the idea that, um, you know, we're going to set a target to achieve a certain percentage of our electricity from renewables by mm -hmm. X date. Right. Um, and so uh, I think those have been very effective tools in motivating uh, more deployment of wind and solar. Um, I think, you know, we've had some success um, with uh, emissions policy, uh, like the Clean Power Plant plan in the U.S. is certainly helping to make the economics of coal more difficult and leading to the shutdown of coal plants. Mm -hmm. um, but really, I think the, the biggest force uh, that's really pushed transition forward has just been the learning curves of technology, you know, we're just figured out how to bring the cost down of wind and solar and efficiency. We figured out how to be uh, more clever about implementing things like demand response. We've had some important innovations in the regulatory environment, you know, so we're putting in regulations, regulations in place that make it uh, economically attractive to implement things like demand response. Um, 
you know, we're, we're kind of getting into another level now, which I think is quite interesting with, uh, you know, the value of solar tariff uh, that they're working with in Minnesota, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, there probably, well, there could be a similar kind of thing to emerge out of New York as part of the Reforming the Energy Vision, the REV program in New York, right. uh, where, you know, basically we're actually starting to look now at how do you fully value all the services that that a wind farm or a solar farm can provide to the grid. And it's not just energy, you know, it's ancillary services, it's things like frequency modulation and capacity and, um, um, you know, other aspects of, of the value stack that haven't been valued up till now. And I think once we continue down that road, we'll get to the point where it makes, um, a value proposition that you can actually build a transaction around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so I think that's that's going to be an important part going forward. So you're seeing a lot of policy mechanisms that have yeah. been central to date and then going forward, just a new way to shape the business case around renewables. Policy mechanisms and I think just continued cost cutting mm-hmm. um, with the new solutions. Yeah. And then on the technological side, have you seen any larger breakthroughs, or even just weight put behind certain technologies that seem to have accelerated, at least the narrative, especially around what's possible with the energy transition? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think there was a lot of sort of misinformation out there um, several years ago, you know, and I think people are starting to realize what's really uh, the case. For example, uh, people were looking at the energy vendor effort in Germany mm-hmm. and saying, oh, well, you know, this is all just silly because sometimes the wind doesn't blow and sometimes the sun doesn't shine. And so for however much capacity you've built in wind and solar, you have to still have 100% backup for uh, from fossil fuels, mm-hmm. uh, from baseload pants. Well, we now know that that's not true. We were, we're hearing that, um, you know, that the, things like the Henrique Venda and other places where you had more wind and solar coming on the grid was going to lead to grid instability and blackouts. Well, we know that's not true either now. In fact, Germany now has the most reliable grid in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all a matter of planning and, you know, just like doing things in, a, in an intelligent way and planning it out and figuring out how it's all going to work. It's really, in very, very many ways, it's an engineering challenge. And, you know, in terms of the actual potential, I don't think there's any reason why we can't run the entire human society on renewables. There's no technical reason we can't do it. It's really a question of human arrangements. It's a question of how we agree to value things, how we get from one kind of market to another, what sort of policies we put in place. You know, in, in, in most cases, it's all stuff that people have just made up. Mm-hmm. It's not a physical problem. Right. So it's more of a conceptual problem in terms of visioning the future. Yeah. And that's something we think about a lot at Student Energy, actually, is that we are a generation of millennials and now actually the next generation coming up as well um, is a big part of our network. And, you know, the conversations that we have at our conferences and among our community are about, you know, the future where everybody has, is going around with autonomous vehicles and, you know, we are totally electrified or other ideas. And a lot of people are saying, well, maybe the next generation can actually see the future in an easier way than the traditional CEOs of energy companies who have been in it for a long time. So do you think that now in looking at this transition modeling, do you think that the transition modeling can actually accurately predict all of the possibilities that will be in play 20, 
30 years from now? No, definitely not. We have no idea how to really model all this stuff. <laughs> well, that's a very honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the important thing is to look at the project of transition mm -hmm. and say, is this an intelligent direction to go in? Does this make some kind of sense? Or is it a crazy thing to do? And if it's not a crazy thing to do, then you get going down the path and you figure it out as you go. I mean, there's just too many variables. We don't have the ability to fully model all the macroeconomic effects, all the feedback effects, all the technology and policy effects that are going to happen along the route to transition. We just don't know. Um, conversely, we should also be aware that we don't know even what the status quo path would be. Like we just heard the gentleman from Shell talking about, you know, Shell scenarios where, you know, decarbonization takes a hundred years and the human population goes to 10 billion people and stays there. And, you know, uh, you have, you know, CCS and all these other things coming in. We don't know that any of that is true. We don't know that we're going to get to 10 billion people. We could get to 8.5 and peak and decline. And, and we could have all sorts of weird uh, effects coming off of that in the financial sector that will then feed back on the energy sector in ways that we can't anticipate right now. Like, we don't really know what's going to happen to energy markets when solar gets to 30% of supply and wind gets to 30% of supply. And all of a sudden, all around the world, your zero marginal cost of producing electricity is zero. Right. We don't know how those markets are actually going to work. And we know, we do know that nobody's going to build a new power plant if the, if the marginal cost is, or the value is zero. So then we know that there would have to be some sort of an intervention, but we don't know what that would be either. So there's just, the best we can do is set a course and just try not to do anything stupid and stay on that course and, to, and figure it out as we go. Stay the course and stay determined. And well, I mean, look, that's how we got where we are. Right. We didn't wind up with the energy system that we have now because we planned it all out 100 years ago and did a full cost-benefit analysis and said, oh, we want to end up where we're driving a billion vehicles on the planet and we're consuming 97 million barrels of oil a day. And, you know, uh, we didn't plan that. It just happened bit by bit as demand materialized. Well, you know what? Demand is going to dematerialize over time. We've already had flat electricity demand in Europe and the U.S. and other parts of the world as well for a decade now. And all the utilities are still projecting these sharp growth curves that are going to take off any day now, just as they have been projecting for the last 10 years. So what's the value of these projections? Very little. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, uh, I think that's a really interesting point because, I mean, every day we're hearing about something new. Not everything will, you know, swim in this environment. Some things will sink. But at the end of the day, we really can't say where new technologies will go, especially as investment in clean tech is just now starting to ramp up. Yeah. What would you say has, looking around recently, what would you say has impressed you the most, like, are there any policy mechanisms you see coming out or technologies or even kind of visions of what cohesively the world should be doing that is impressing you? Well, I think, I think the, um, the, the renewed or, or increased interest around electric vehicles is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that could have a lot more potential than many people think. 
Um, I also think, again, there's probably been some overly bullish projections about the adoption rates of EVs that, you know, should give us pause. Um, you know, you have to recognize that, uh, for example, in the U.S., electric vehicles are 0.16% uh, of the rolling stock, 0.16% 0, 0. of the fleet of light vehicles on the road, and it's 0.7% of sales. So we're not even at 1% of EV sales or uh, percentage of vehicles on the road. But I think those adoption rates are going to jump up pretty quickly, uh, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And that would be a very surprising development for a lot of people, and I think it could have a huge impact. Um, we're seeing baseload plants being retired a lot more quickly than anyone expected. And there are people in the utility industry now wringing their hands about it, going, oh, my God, you know, we thought these plants were going to be able to continue to provide high-priced peak power for another 10 years, and, and we're just getting them completely washed out right now because of things like efficiency yeah. improvements um, and just general demand destruction, which goes to other things as well. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot of... Um, I think that's important stuff. I'm, I'm not particularly hopeful for carbon pricing just because it's been talked about for so long and nobody's done anything, but that could still happen, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. See. And then since we are in Canada at the moment, I do have to ask the Canadian question of when you're looking at economies that have a significant amount of oil wealth at the moment, let's yeah. say, that are also looking for new markets within the energy transition. What is the potential for an economy like Canada to, let's say, influence the U.S. market or export to the U.S. market as we're looking at, you know, this cycle of electrify everything is what a lot of people are calling it, mm -hmm. um, and all these other clean tech ventures that are kind of popping up. Is there a real opportunity for business to transition as well? Oh, absolutely. I think so. You know, I mean, look, we're, we're at the very beginning of energy transition now. Uh, we have a massive built environment of old technology that has to be replaced. Um, and so we need all sorts of innovation, both, you know, I mean, everything from basic materials innovation to coming up with more efficient renewable energy devices to new policy to new business models for utilities. Um, and, you know, nobody... Nobody is particularly, you know, better positioned than somebody else to figure out those answers. There's no reason Canada can't, you know, be a major leader on all those things. No reason at all. It's, it's, uh, I think it's very much a meritocracy at this point. Yeah, interesting. And I think that's a good place to, to go with it, is that really it is an open field right now. There is so much change that needs to happen. Oh, absolutely. So many inventions, so many policy mechanisms yeah. that it's really anybody's game at this point. Yeah, why not? Yeah, definitely. So we've come just about to the end of my questions, um, but I was wondering if you'd like to give a final plug for the transition show. We have our wide audience of nerds, people who are excited about nothing other than energy transitions and what's coming up next. So yeah. what type of things are you exploring on the show and, oh, and why should our nerds tune in? Oh, man. Well, for one thing, um, I'm deliberately designing the show to highlight new research and exciting data uh, and new findings that are coming out of the academic community, especially, mm -hmm. but also out of the national laboratories in the U.S. and, you know, other interesting modeling efforts that are going on. And I've actually got a number of professors now um, 
using the Energy Transition Show as curriculum in their classes. And I actually have some students who are writing me going, wow, you know, what I learned on your show has totally changed my career path. So that's super exciting to me. Yeah. I'm deliberately f aiming the show in part at students uh, in the university level who are interested in energy transition. Um, so I'm really trying to, you know, when I look around at the topics I want to cover or the um, experts that I want to interview, I'm looking for people that are very cutting edge who are working on, you know, what I think is the cool shit, you know, and I'm not, I'm not really interested in talking to, you know, um, the stodgy old guys about what the, you know, what is, please reiterate the beliefs that you've had for the last 30 years. I'm not <laughs> in that at all, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to push the envelope and, and highlight what's new and fresh and interesting and, um, you know, get the sharpest minds I can get. Uh, so I think, you know, I would hope that, that the inner nerds out there would really tune in and, and check it out. And I think that they will, and that's an excellent plug. Um, I know I'm an avid listener, uh, and a lot of our community already is, so I highly encourage all of you to go check out the Transition Show for another deep dive on energy and energy issues, nice. especially the exciting things coming up with this open playing field of the transition. Yeah, and you know, I, I should also say I read every email that listeners send to me and I try to respond to them all as well and so you know I totally um, I've gotten some great ideas for future shows from listeners who write in um, and I'm always open to suggestions and feedback or criticism or whatever awesome yeah. that's great great well thank you so much Chris it's thank great you. running into you again yeah. and keeping you in the student energy loop Probably. and we'll, I'm sure we'll do this again sometime awesome thank you brings to a close another month's episode of Energy Voices. My name is Sean Collins, and I've been the host of this hour of programming. For past episodes, you can visit bit.ly slash energy voices to stream or download any episodes. 